Before we start the show, let me share with you an amazing new product I've been using. I actually never did the show on CBD because there were so many options out there and reports to read over, so it took some time. But when my team brought up the brand Ned, I've never heard of them. So naturally, I was a little bit pessimistic because I am about a lot of brands because I know that I have a high standard, the Dr. G standard, right? The standard that is high quality, pure, clean, but also effective, right? You want the product to work. So when I decided to look into them, I checked the website first and I immediately noticed beautiful branding, which is great aesthetically to the eye, great. But then I started reading and learning more about the company, the mission, the dedication, equality. Then I received in my inbox all the third-party testing for their products. Then I looked into it super clean, super impressed. Not only is it devoid of those preservatives that you see in a lot of these products, but it has the full spectrum of necessary cannabinoids to make it an effective product. Uh, and then I spoke to the founder, which was such an important connection for me. I have to be in full alignment. And we spoke firsthand about the ethos of the company, right? What they believe in. I was impressed by their dedication to a high quality product, but also in helping people, helping spread the word, making people healthy. The passion was there. So yeah, I tried it out. I, I got a box of Ned. So here is what we see from Ned CBD. It's a full spectrum CBD, which is extracted from organically grown hemp plants, sourced from Paonia, Colorado. I really like that they use slow, cold extraction under 40 degrees for their hemp flowers, which actually preserves them instead of destroying them with different types of extraction methods. They also have zero isolates, zero synthetic ingredients, right? I mentioned the third-party testing, which was really important, and we saw this in there. So full-spectrum hemp means it has all of the cannabinoids, not just CBD, and I mentioned this earlier. You'll get a wide range of benefits that help that biological system, right? And what you're gonna see is benefits in different parts of your life. For me, I use the sleep one immediately. I use it for four days in a row, and what I found was that I was waking up in the same exact position I fell asleep in. That was my experience. And I know that it can be really strong. I've tried different CBD products for sleep, but by far this was the best one, particularly because the first night I felt it. Also, you can utilize it as an anti-inflammatory, a natural pain reliever for anxiety, for PTSD, to be supportive in depression. It's also a rich source of antioxidant. You can also support it when it comes to chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. There's data out there that's growing about the importance of CBD when it comes to these diseases. So I really utilize that as part of my morning routine, and then I use a sleep one in my evening routine. Uh, it's become part of my regimen, and I'm really enjoying it at this moment. So if you're a Heal Thyself listener, you'll receive 15% off your first purchase or 20% off your first membership purchase. Memberships offer great perks, including 15% off of every purchase. So go to helloned.com slash Dr. G and enter the code DRG at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash D-R-G and you'll get 15% off of your first time order and 20% off of your first subscription order plus free shipping. Hey, all right, everyone. Welcome to Heal Thyself, another episode. Thank you for joining us, taking the time out of your day. You might be in your car. You might be at home. You might be in the office. You might be for a walk. But regardless, we're giving you this information you're hearing it, leading you to water, and maybe, just maybe, some things resonate where you can make a change in your life physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. This is what holistic health is. Very special show. As always, today, I never really took the time to do a full deep dive into our digestive system, and I'm sorry, but now's the time to do it. Always timing with everything. So today's both knowledge bomb and product review are all going to be in the same segment where we're going to go into the digestive system mouth, down to the stomach, 
small intestine, large intestine, and out the other end. We're gonna talk about everything, how to optimize everything, the best foods that you need to be eating to support each organ in each step, as well as some supplements and brands that I like for each part. So really going to give you some good information about optimizing your digestive system. And then a very special guest, if you have children, or even if you don't have children, if you have a loved one with children, uh, we have a medical doctor, pediatrician, integrative pediatrician coming in to talk about everything, all things, children, children's health, what to look for, things that you really need to consider to optimize your child's health. Without further ado, let's get to this Knowledge Bomb product review segment. All right, gut health, gut health, gut health, you know, we go through the importance of the digestive system so much on so many segments. I know you hear it on blogs, you watch it on videos. They think, talk about things like leaky gut or SIBO or bloating, constipation, diarrhea, all these things. So what I wanted to do was bring to the surface how digestion works, right? We'll do a little bit of a dive into that, but really the parts of digestion, how to optimize it, right? The thing about the digestive system, it's, it's so integrally connected. Right, The way you're chewing your food is going to affect the way your stomach or the effect of your stomach for breaking down that food. Uh, it may take longer. It may put more stress in the stomach. So there's so many parts to it, and I kind of want to bring it to the surface so you all can consider what to do to optimize your digestion. So I'll be mentioning some of my favorite products for each part of digestion that I've used in the past. I've used for patients um, that have really been helpful. Of course, as always, I'm going to say talk to your doctor, talk to your practitioner to make sure it's safe for you, right? This isn't medical advice, but I am giving some recommendations that I've used in the past that have been helpful. So if you're suffering from things like heartburn, IBS, inflammatory bowel disease, right, constipation, diarrhea, bloating... These are signs that your digestive system may be off at some point in this stepwise progression of digesting food. So the question is, is where, why, and how? What can we do to alleviate that? How can we improve? So that's what I'm here to give you, some good information, right? So one important thing I learned in school, and I'll never forget when one of the, um, one of the teachers was said, if, if you're ever in doubt with the body, start with the gut. And I really, it really resonated with me because up to that point, what I saw was so much was beginning in the digestive system, right? Not only are we breaking down food, we're absorbing food. We have an eco-community of bugs, right? Bacteria, viruses, yeast, parasites. This is, these, all these things are living in our gut. And, th and that, when that community is out of balance, so are we. And we're starting to see now over research, over time, right, as we're uncovering the microbiome, as we're uncovering digestive health, is that digestive health is one of the main focuses for overall health. So if, it's fair to say if your digestion is off, it's likely that another part of your body is off and your health is not optimized, okay? So yeah, when in doubt, start with the gut. It's a very powerful statement. But the, uh, the, as I said, the gut is integral to human health. The digestive system, if you take it all out, is going to be about 25 to 30 feet long. It's a lot. The surface area, if you lay it out, is going to be about the size of half of a tennis court, which is a lot of surface area. A lot of surface area uh, for digesting food, for absorbing food. There's a lot of processes that go down. It's a very active, active, dynamic process. So food can take one to three days 
to go in one end and come out the other. It just depends on the type of food, right? Meat, fish, seafood is going to take a long time to come out. Digestion starts before you eat. There's a, a, a phase of digestion called the cephalic phase, and I'm going to lay it out for you in a picture. So imagine you come home, right? You go to mom's house or your dad's house. You may be young. You may be coming back from college. You may be married and coming back to visit for the holidays, but whatever. Someone's in the kitchen cooking, mom, dad, and as soon as you walk in, you smell it. And you walk in the door and you, and you smell that aroma. It's leading you into the kitchen, right? You come into the kitchen, you give mom or dad a hug. You get a glimpse of what's cooking, right? Maybe you see it in the, in the skillet. You see it in the oven. You see something boiling, but you smell it. You may even hear it. You may hear oil on the pan. You may hear some, some boiling in, in a pot, some water boiling. But all of these sensations are already stimulating digestion. It's pretty incredible before you even get anything into your mouth. And the reason why is we're connected with our eyes, with our nose, with our ears to digestion. So think first, having the relationship with food, smelling it, using your senses before you eat, that's stimulating gastric secretion, the juice in your stomach. It's getting ready to digest because it knows there's got to be some food coming. So the stomach is really where there's heavy, that's when we start seeing a lot of digestion. It begins in the mouth. The chewing, you're breaking down some carbohydrates and the chewing being very important. That's where really digestion starts after the cephalic phase when you really have that food in the body. But I wanna go into the stomach. It takes six to eight hours for food to leave the stomach and go to the small intestine, right? The stomach is so, so important for setting the precedent for digestion. You have gastric juice, which is super acidic juice that's released by your stomach in response to food. And what, what it's doing is making that food soluble, making it digestible. Digestible. You're, you're eating up some protein. You're breaking it down already. You're absorbing some of the B12 from your food. It's also, very importantly, inactivating microorganisms. So all the bacteria that was in that leftover food that you just decided to eat because you didn't want to make something or you had a long night, it's helping render those to a place where it's not affecting, it won't infect your digestive system. So really important, the role of digestive juice in neutralizing microorganisms that could potentially make you sick. Proper digestive juice, juice production is the second step in really healthy digestion. The first though, and I mentioned the mouth, you gotta chew your food. Chewing your food is most, most, most important because it's not only stimulating gastric juice, but it's also stimulating digestion. It's helping break down carbohydrates already, right? When bacteria is overgrowing in the small intestine, you got to look at the stomach because remember, I talked about gastric juice rendering microorganisms to nothing. So really important that you have a good amount of gastric juice and some folks do not. So always look upstream. Again, it's a dynamic, connected system. So what are the, some of the ways we can support the stomach? So by far, I mentioned chewing your food, being present with your food, no phone, no TV, no conversations. This is the number one thing for helping your stomach, supporting your stomach, increasing gastric fluid. So, so important. So you got to be present with your food so you can support your stomach. What else? Don't drink a ton of water with your food, right? Drink it before meals about four ounces or with food, but not too much. A lot of us get used to, and we're stuck in the cycle of drinking so much soda or juice or water with our food. And what that's doing is temporarily causing an increase in the acidity of the stomach. It's making more alkaline, which we don't want. And it's reducing. So it's basically diffusing, reducing that stomach acidity. We want it to be stimulated, ready to work. What else? Bitters. Bitters. They're aromatic alcohol-based herbal preparations. They use them a lot in cocktails. You see them in bars. But the one I like is the one by Quicksilver. 
there are these just uh, bitter pump. It's a pump, and it just uh, you, what you do is deliver the bitters under the tongue. You do it right before meals. There's one. There's also a really good one by Urban Moonshine Apothecary. But bitters, are, you might have heard of gentian or orange peel. Um, those are really important bitters. So if you're having an issue with digestion, like you're, you're, you're feeling heartburn or you're feeling bloating immediately, bitters may help. You also uh, may find ginger really helpful for the stomach, uh, especially something like ginger tea, uh, particularly if you're prone to nausea. But ginger has been really helpful too for stomach support. And anecdotally, I found that apple cider vinegar before meals, about a tablespoon and four ounces of water, is really helpful for stimulating that stomach acid before meals, okay? Now, again, if you have hypochlorohydria, right, the low stomach acid, you're not getting enough um, then you have to talk to your doctor. They might talk to you about HCL tablets, really providing stomach acid support in the form of tablets. Again, this is not medical advice. You got to talk to your doctor first, okay? What else? How do we optimize our digestion? One of the major steps, the liver. The liver, the liver, the liver. I did a whole show on the liver. That's how important it was, episode 21. Because when you get to the small intestine, you got to you got to talk about liver pancreas. There's, they're so intimately tied with digestion, right? Liver has over 500 vital for functions, but really when it comes to digestion, it's in digesting fats. Without the liver, you wouldn't be able to fully break down fats. Like the pancreas, it also has a role in helping control blood sugar, but the liver is super resilient because it has so many jobs day to day on the to-do list. Uh, but bile, 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 that's what's helping break down that fat. It's stored in the gallbladder. So one of the telltale signs as a practitioner that I look for, if there's complaints of digestion of fats, is, okay, what's going on in the liver? What's going on with the gallbladder? Is it clogged? Is it not, is it not producing bile efficiently? Is it not releasing it efficiently? Really, that's, some, that's things we have to look for, especially, like, let's say every time you eat a fatty meal, right, almond butter and avocado, you're starting to feel, oh, in my stomach, I just, I get pain in my stomach every single time, or I feel really bloated, or I feel like it's stuck in my stomach. Well, those are things you really have to start talking to your practitioner about because they need to look at your liver and your gallbladder, okay? So, um, and granted, everyone's different. It's not just, some people just can't tolerate a lot of fat. I personally can't have a high fat diet. I can never be keto uh, because just ancestrally, my body loves carbohydrates so much more. It utilizes them efficiently. I don't gain weight from carbohydrates. But some other folks away from the equator who really thrived and survived on fat, it may be different. Their liver genetically is already at a place where they can break down efficiently fat. So it just changes person to person. But if you find every single time you eat something fatty, there's a problem and you feel that it ain't right, then that's something to talk to your doctor about, okay? How do you support the liver? Think sulfur-rich foods, cruciferous veggies, kale, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all the ones that if you put in a little container and you open it in the middle of the workday on an airplane, even worse, it's going to smell. Those, that's sulfur being liberated and released. But these sulfur-rich foods are going to be helping your liver, not only giving it nutrients, but also helping it detoxify. So super important. One caveat when you do eat sulfur-rich foods the enzyme that activates the therapeutic properties is really delicate. So if you cook broccoli, for example, for six or seven minutes on medium temperature, you're going to lose about 50% of that enzyme and 50% of those therapeutic properties. So what I always tell people is you can utilize mustard seed powder. So cook your food. After you're done, add some mustard seed powder to it. 
dress it with mustard seed powder. And what you're doing is you're replenishing those enzymes, replenishing those therapeutic properties, and then you're getting the maximum benefit of sulfur-rich food, these cruciferous veggies. That's a, that's a big hack that we got to be adding into our diet, particularly if you're a lover of these foods. What are some other foods? Onions, garlic, leafy greens, vitamin C-rich foods, bell peppers, oranges, limes, lemons, papaya, guava. These are so important for, for supporting your liver health and detoxification. It's going to run efficiently when you're giving these precursors to its health. Also think about roots, turmeric, ginger, beets. Supplementally, I love pure encapsulations and acetylcysteine. That's a precursor to glutathione. Glutathione, the, the pump by Quicksilver, really good. Designs for Health also has a really good NAC. Um, vitamin C, liposomal or buffered. If you have if you have a really sensitive stomach, you might want uh, the buffered vitamin C. Uh, but liposomal is deliverable vitamin C. There's di different brands that have them out there. I like the Quicksilver liposomal, and I believe Thorn has a powdered buffered. Uh, minerals will always be supporting the liver. The liver loves minerals. The liver utilizes minerals for its breakdown every step of the process. So um, there's two types of minerals that I like, quinton. These are the vile seawater minerals that uh, I use every morning. As soon as I wake up, I add it into my water. But there's also shilajit. Shilajit is a resin found in the Himalayas. Um, interesting, it's very mineral rich. The thing is, there's a lot, a lot of companies that have shilajit with low heavy metals. You can imagine there's natural occurring heavy metals and minerals. They kind of go hand in hand a lot of the time. So um, I'd like, I'd like to find a company that has a really good shilajit. I'll report back, but it's just think that that's a mineral rich food. Always remember that. What else? What else is another digestive organ that we got to be talking about? The pancreas is a major digestive organ. It needs all the L-O-V-E love, right? Right behind the stomach, the pancreas is so important in digestion of food. You ain't going to digest food properly if your pancreas isn't working. You're not going to control your blood sugar if your pancreas isn't working. It's a big reason why pancreatic cancer is so deadly. So it's aggressive, yes, but it also will shut down your digestive process. So pancreas is going to help in the digestion of fat, just like the liver. It's also going to digest protein, carbohydrates, right? You also have hormones in the pancreas like insulin. That's going to be reducing the blood sugar. Glucagon, which is going to help raise the blood sugar like the liver can do too. And then it releases other enzymes that help control the appetite or stimulate stomach acid. So the whole system is intimately connected. But when you think about the pancreas, you got to think about iron-rich foods, B vitamin-rich foods. The pancreas loves these love spinach. It has both iron and B vitamins. What else? Sulfur-rich foods. I mentioned all about those in the liver. I won't mention it again, but really important. What else? Sweet potato. It's interesting because it kind of looks like a pancreas, and that's called the doctrine of signatures. There's no evidence with it, but it's very interesting because the correlation between, wow, this sort of looks like this in the body, and it just so happens a lot of the time that food is helpful for that part of the body. Well, Nah, the same goes with sweet potato. So what we know is sweet potato will help control blood sugar, but also has constituents and antioxidants that are helpful in protecting the pancreas. Always think antioxidants for organs, antioxidants particularly for the pancreas. So green tea, matcha, all the variety of fruits and vegetables, different colors. As I mentioned, sweet potato, which is rich in beta carotene, another important antioxidant. Berries, cherries, raspberries, blackberries, all the berries, varieties, and cherries, really important at uh, helping support and grapes, helping support the pancreas. And I really like reishi. Reishi is something that uh, is antioxidant rich, but also has certain compounds that help support the pancreas. What else? Supplements. 
antioxidant-rich supplements, always think pancreas, antioxidants. So you can get an antioxidant formula. Um, if you don't like matcha or drink matcha or like green tea, there's EGCG. That's the constituent, the antioxidant that is in matcha. And I like the ones by Design for Health or Nutritional Fundamentals for Health. Pancreatic enzymes. Talk to your doctor if this is right for you. You may need support. It's not going to get to the root cause of why you're deficient or you're not digesting well, but it may be supportive in breaking down your food. Um, one, the ones that I like are bio-optimizers. And I have those. I carry those with me, especially if I'm going to a dinner somewhere. And um, I know it's going to be a rich meal. Um, heavy meal, rich meal. I use pancreatic enzymes. I just take two before I eat them, but talk to your doctor. Okay. All right. So now we've cleared it. We're nearing the two most, one of the two of the most important parts. The whole thing's important. All right. But we got to talk about the small intestine. You're going to have food here for about two to six hours, but this is where all the action happens. This is where you are absorbing the nutrients. And it's interesting, right? Because you're not what you eat. You're what you absorb. If your small intestine is not working correctly, or is compromised, you're not getting the optimal maximum amount of nutrients from your food. So if you ever hear of intestinal permeability or more commonly called leaky gut, that's when the lining, the lining of your digestive system is compromised. And what happens is it's made up of gap junctions. Gap junctions are very, very important concept for us to understand because the better we understand gap junctions, the better we understand digestive health. So in my opinion, it's one of the main concepts to understand as a whole. Um, I think that all gastroenterologists should be experts in gap junctions and understand how everything happens in between cell to cell. So what is a gap junction? It's basically when the cells connect with their cytoplasm. That's the material that's inside the cell. They're connected by it. So imagine human beings, uh, this is like a, a little bit like human centipede, but connected by their organs, right? There's our inner part, our inner world, right? Our inner tissue is connected to each other. So that's what happens with cells. They're connected by their cytoplasm. And what that, what's happening is it's formulating a massive network of cells, sort of like a giant net. And it's a connection that they share. So not only are they sharing molecules, ions, but one of the most important concepts we have to understand is it, it shares electrical impulses, right? So it's not just one cell communicating with another cell. It happens in a fractions of a second where cells communicate all with each other. And this is such an important, important, important concept to digestive health because when all your cells are communicating together in harmony, so too is our digestive health in harmony. So Zach Bush actually came to this show, episode 81, and spoke about it. We had one of the most fascinating talks I've ever had on this show. And he actually went into gap junctions and talked about how important that is as one part of our digestive health. And I'll talk about the other part. But it's important. It's networks, it's connections, and it's what it's compromised. It, things like dysbiosis, meaning the overgrowth of pathogenic bugs in our, in our gut, pesticides, antibiotics, medications, infections, inflammation, stress. These are all affecting the integrity, that connection of this net. And I want you to think about it this way. Think about uh, there's a protective communicative net over your home and it protects your home and your family and your pets. And it's giving off signals to the neighborhood that everything is safe and healthy in this little area. Now imagine there's holes that are being teared and opened up in this net. So not only is the whole communication between the neighborhood compromised, but also you have to think about what's coming in, what's coming out. That protective net is, the harmony is compromised completely. So this, the system, the health of that home and the neighborhood is now vulnerable. So think about the same way in digestion. When that net, that protective net has holes or tears or any vulnerability due to an insult, 
then the whole body is going to be at risk, not only the digestive system. And that's why I try to bring this up. It's so important to understand that. Systemically, when there's an issue with this cytoplasmic connection, these gap junction, it can affect our whole system. Microbes, molecules that are supposed to stay in our digestive system is getting out into the blood. So now joints, skin, heart, brain are all vulnerable to, to molecules, to agents that are not supposed to be in the blood that are now circulating. So really important concept to think about. When you think of gut health, you always have to think, how can I optimize my gap junctions first and foremost, okay? Keep the harmony before anything. You got to remove all this stuff. You got to remove the stuff that's destroying the integrity. I mentioned it before. Give the body what it needs. So I mentioned SIBO before, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when you have an overgrowth of bacteria in the intestine, it shouldn't be there. It should be in the colon. They travel up there and they're there for a reason. And a major cause, and it's a major cause of destruction for that net, that protective net. And you heard me mention before that it's got to be, an, it, a lot of times it's an upstream issue in the stomach. So always pay attention upstream. What happens before that step that isn't working efficiently that caused or created that environment for bacteria to grow there? Um, and this is why if, you're, if you have a digestive complaint, you have to think about the digestive system as a whole. You can't just be like, oh, I have heartburn, my stomach hurts. What about the rest of the system? What about your esophagus? What about your small intestine? All right, so what about foods? What foods really help uh, support and really strengthen this, this layer of cells, right? This really thin, intimate layer. Uh, Ion Biome by Zach Bush, of course. He came onto the show, talked about it. He, kn he knows exactly the importance of it. So his formula comes from soil-based uh, derivatives. And what it's doing is it's supporting that electrical communication network in the microbiome. He called this the wire network because the cytoplasmic, the cytoplasm of the cells are connecting via wires or, you know, cellular, cellular wire-like apparatuses that help communication happen. And then he later spoke about the microbiome being the wireless communication network. But both are essential, not only for digestive health, for human health as a whole. So Ion Biome is something I take every morning, Ion Biome. Um, and that's by Zach Bush. What else? Microbiome Labs, uh, they have a nice formula called Mega Mucosa, has tons of nutrients and support, supportive compounds for gut healing. And Microbiome Labs is one of the best gold standards for gut health supplements. So you can always explore them. We have them on the Swell Score, actually. Usually they come in powder form, these supportive powders. Think about revive powders, restore powders. They have them from different companies like Vital Nutrients, Pure. I think Thorne has one, Da Vinci has ones. Um, but uh, what you really want to do is talk to your doctor first, right? What's the first step? Because a restore or revive powder for your gut may not be the first step. They might follow four or five R programs, which is, which is functional and naturopathic terminology for a gut healing program. Again, everyone's different. Talk to your doctor first. All right, the last part, the last part of the digestive system that is so important to optimize is the colon. Right there, food is staying for 10 to 59 hours. The gut microbiome has 10 to the 14th bacteria, 10 to the 14th. That's, that's a lot of zeros. And I don't even know what number that is because I ain't never been too good at math, but I'm telling you right now, that's a lot. Uh, and with 300 to 1,000 different types of species of bacteria. So the species, the microbiome, the good ones, the really beneficial ones are going to help digest our food, help balance our immune system, help produce vitamins like B vitamins, vitamin K for clotting and bone. They help us digest fiber. It actually feeds on the fiber we give it and, and benefits and then gifts us those vitamins back. It's a beautiful, 
beautiful commensal relationship. But this is why fiber is so important. It's also important, uh, the microbiome is important in connecting with your brain. It's, it's intimately tied with brain health. We, we're learning about that. Mood, blood sugar, obesity, the, the microbiome is everything uh, to human health. It really is. And um, if you're not thinking microbiome, which is the second part of digestive health, then you're not optimizing not only your digestive health, but also your systemic health. So how do we support our colon? Fiber, 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 fiber. All the fruits, all the vegetables, and that's it, right? You wanna support your system, you gotta start eating the fiber because these are what these good buggers feed on. You can, and the thing is, Americans eat about 15 to 25 grams of fiber per day, super low. I mean, the recommended fiber intake is 25 to 30 grams, which is preposterous. It's way, way too low, especially evolutionarily. We used to eat so much, so much more fiber. The more fiber we eat, the, on, as a general rule of thumb, the better good bacteria we have. But go slow. If you are introducing more fiber to your diet, have about five more grams per week because the microbiome needs to adjust. It needs to catch up, right? So you're not then eating fiber and going, this is why people who eat plant-based diets, right? They switch, they, they, all of a sudden they were keto or, or paleo. They had so much meat. And then all of a sudden they're going, all right, I'm gonna reduce meat intake and I'm just gonna up all my vegetables. And they go, oh my God, I'm bloated. Uh, my bowel, uh, I'm constipated. I have heartburn. I just, I feel terrible on a plant-based diet. It's because all of a sudden you're going from 15 to 25 grams of fiber to 80 grams of fiber a day. You got to go really slow because your microbiome needs to adjust. All right. So you don't need a fiber supplement. Start with food, all of the different foods, all the fruits, all the vegetables, all the different colors. Fermented food is great too. It gives you good bacteria, but first think about fiber always. The thing about fermented food, and it's great, sauerkraut, kefir, kimchi, miso tempeh, sourdough, but they tend to be higher in histamine, and a lot of folks don't do well with fermented foods because they get itching or redness, and that's because they're high in histamine, and you're having a histamine reaction. Um, but always think fiber first. Supplementally, the thing about probiotics is this, and this is why I've never done a show on probiotics, is because like Dr. Mary Pardee said when she came on here, probiotics are not residents. You don't take them, and they take residents in your gut. That doesn't happen. It's sort of a myth. What really is happening is they're coming through like passerbyers through a village, and they have really good messages, and they're giving gifts to the other bacteria, and they're teaching the other bacteria ways, healthier ways, right? So think of like Jack LaLanne or Jane Fonda coming through your town and teaching your town how to do aerobics. That's what it basically is, and then it leaves, right, because they don't take residence, but you, you, you continue, you have those messengers, you have that, that part of your gut that remembers. So, uh, that's basically the way probiotics work. With that said, there's some really good probiotics out there, but it depends on what's going on for you. So you got to talk to your doctor about this. I like the ones by Microbiome Labs, Claire and Orthomolecular. So to round out everything, we know how to optimize, at least we know better how to support the different parts of a digestive system, right? We talked about the stomach, the liver, the pancreas, small intestine, large intestine, colon. Really the question is, is are we eating the foods first and foremost that support it? And if we're not, can we start integrating those foods to really support our digestive system? And then the other question is, is okay, supplementally, what are some targeted supplements that I can use to support it? But always remember what we talked about when it came to the gap junctions, right? The intestine, the lining of the intestine is so, so important. That is one of the biggest take-homes I want you all to take home is how important the integrity of that is and how we optimize it. 
as well as the microbiome. The, both of them are so dependent. The healthier those two are, the healthier our digestive system is, okay? Take out the things that are disrupting your digestive system, stress, physical. If you're working out way too much, you're gonna be affecting your microbiome, you're gonna be affecting your digestive system. If you're mentally stressed, that's a surefire way. You have so many nerves from the brain to the gut that are going to innervate the digestive health, right? So sympathetic nervous system, when that's activated, all the blood is rushing out of your digestive system into your muscles. If you're continuously like that, right? You're eating, but you're also really, really freaking out about a deadline you have and you're eating. I guarantee you're not going to have enough blood to digest properly, efficiently, and effectively your food. So think about being present with your food more. What else? Get, start eating more organic foods. Those pesticides we know affect your microbiome. They know, we know they affect the gap junctions, right? Antibiotics, same thing. They can affect the microbiome, whether it just be short-term or some long-term. Medications, ask your doctor if your medication is gonna affect your digestive system. It affects your microbiome. Obesity is creating more inflammation. Heavy metals, for sure. Alcohol, surefire way to affect your digestive system at the snap of a finger. Processed foods, get off of that, get more on a whole food diet. And other comorbidities, if you have another disease, you're most likely inflamed and you're most likely creating a place in your body that is affecting your microbiome and those gap junctions, okay? So start thinking about how we improve the things. Remember, it's always take the crap out and put the good in, all right? Man, I really hope that helped. Um, digestive system could be a lot. This could be three parts, but I tried to condense it as much as possible for you all. Um, so take that into account. Now it's time for the special guest. You know, we don't have many pediatricians in here. The last one we had, Alana Rumel, she dropped some good, like amazing pediatrician bombs. But now we have um, Dr. Joel Gator here. Very interesting name. I love that. And he's going to talk to us all about pediatrics. And I'm super excited. everyone very special guest today when was the last time you heard me speak about pediatrics or have a pediatric guest on the show well today's very special we have dr joel gator walsh we call him dr gator and we're going to go into all things integrative pediatrics so questions you have about your kid we're hoping to get them answered thank you for coming on the show doc Thanks so much for having me. Maybe we won't cover every question, <laughs> but I do have a lot of questions for you. Let's get it going. Let's get it going. What the heck is integrative pediatrics, first of all? When it comes to the term integrative, a lot of people think of you know woo-woo, shaman, stuff like that, but it's really not that, and everyone really has a different definition. But to me, it's really combining the best of modern Western medicine with Eastern and holistic medicine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for me, I did all the regular training. I trained at a great Western allopathic program, but I just got a little bit frustrated with the regular system. And so that's what led me to start learning some natural medicine. And we combine the best of both worlds. You don't want to miss something serious. It doesn't mean you don't use an antibiotic when you need it, but most of the time there are other things that you can do. So we just blend the best of both worlds together. So when you were in school, uh, so your curriculum did not involve like learning about the holistic integrative part. So f I know that there's a lot of doctors who listen to the show too. How did you start accessing that part of that information? So correct. So during regular residency medical training, you don't really learn a lot about natural medicine. So it's really up to you to go out and learn uh, from other resources. So I started learning some functional medicine. There's great courses and resources and books on that. I started learning about supplements. I uh, trained with other holistic practitioners. So I went to their office sometimes and just kind of watched what they did and learned from them. And a lot of it's just reading books, discussion, and, and learning on your own. It's such a massive world yeah. when it comes to integrative medicine and you can be 
you can do acupuncture, you could do yoga, you could do Chinese medicine, you could do Ayurvedic medicine, you could do supplements, homeopathy. There's so many different worlds and you just, you can't be great at all of them, but you have to find your passion and yeah. then start learning uh, whatever it is that you want to do and then blending it with your regular training. Yeah, I, I have been very vocal about how important integrative bridge is between the worlds because we're, we're stuck in a world that is really just symptom management. And I know that you saw that in school. You're like, oh, there's got to be more. We can prevent, right? We can heal in other ways. So I think that I'm, I did. I do integrative oncology. I did. So it's really amazing that we have pediatrics like that, uh, the pediatrics world like that. But let's <laughs> let's get into this. We were talking before we got on air. God bless you. You you can work with kids all day, and that's a lot of energy. And then the dynamic of working with the parents. What? What made you go when you were in school, you know what, let me do pediatrics, maybe instead of orthopedic surgery or maybe neurology, what made you go into pediatrics? It was a couple of things. First of all, kids listen a lot better. You know, when you're trying to help adults, I always found that you know, they're not, uh, they don't always take the guidance that you give as well. But with kids, you can see differences all the time. I also just love working with kids always. I used to coach sports. I'm Canadian, so I used to coach hockey, baseball, mm -hmm. and I just loved working with kids. So when I went to medical school, it was always to become a pediatrician. There wasn't mm -hmm. really another option. But you really see when you go to med school, there's people that are pediatrics and people that aren't. You either love working with kids or you don't, and you're not going to be in the middle. <laughs> ah, gotcha, gotcha. So, and that's, it, I think it takes a certain type of person because it's a lot. It's a lot. When I, I was telling you, before we got on air also. You gotta be good with crying. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of crying in yeah. the office. I, I remember, uh, and I'll tell you a quick story. I was, I, I had a, I wanted to, I was like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do pediatrics. Maybe I'll check it out. So, you know, I, I get it during, to, to the pediatric shift and there's a kid and the mom, and I'm talking to the mom and the kid's staring at me and he has a truck in his hand and he just throws it at me. And then I duck it, and then he comes and kicks me in the shin. I go, Jesus. I go, that, th there you go, done, no more pediatrics. I think I'll just go on oncology instead. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's like. Can, can I just say, too, I think it goes the other way, too, and I you know, commend you for being in oncology, because it was the exact same thing for me. Is I, I, I commended them so much for doing it, but I did my oncology rotation. I just couldn't do it. Ah. It was just so too, too sad for me, just yeah. going through that with dealing with the patients and going yeah. through all that. And I think it just. It takes a certain personality type for each field. Exactly. It, you know, you you do such great things, amazing things in, in oncology or ob gyn or in surgery, but it's whichever one you love to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's let, let's talk about like there's a lot of parents who listen to the show too, right? And are there? I guess I guess there's 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 things that happen to kids, right? They have eczema, ADHD, gut issues. How accessible is it to them to start treating their children integratively? It, it, there's not a lot of integrative. We were talking about around in L, around LA, but how do how do these people find more resources? Because if they only think that they could take this cream for eczema, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people frustrated out there. Where do they go? And then we'll go into some more details about the kids. It's tough to find an integrative medical doctor. There are not many of us that have done all of the regular training and then. Um, gone further and learned about integrative medicine. There's certainly some, so you can definitely Google it and see if there's somebody in your area. I found that people go through Facebook groups or other groups where they just ask other parents in the area, hey, I'm looking for an integrative doctor. Do you know anybody? And, and there's usually some in major centers. There's also lots of naturopathic doctors that mm -hmm. work with kids as well. So there are resources, and some people also do online consults, though you have to be you know, careful when you're doing just online right. stuff. But I, I think it's not, it's not that easy. I, I hope that more people... Or more doctors go into it over time. Every practice that I know of that works on it gets fulfilled really fast. I mean, we're already at getting filling up our second doctor mm -hmm. now because people are just so interested in this. And 
when I went into it, I was amazed. You know, we opened up my own practice three years ago, and we have celebrities that have come, tons of celebrities, tons of dignitaries, tons of uh, just very high-end people that are looking for this yeah. at, mixed with just all sorts of other people in the area that are, are really you know, looking to switch. And people will drive from you know, San Diego, so you know, we're in LA, so they'll drive two, three hours. Some people sometimes fly in wow. from other states because there just really isn't a lot of this. It's not that there's zero practitioners that do it, but there aren't many. Yeah, yeah. which it, it, but that just shows the need, right? There's right. people traveling for this. Mm-hmm. Why are people feeling unhappy? Mm-hmm. What is it about the allopathic pediatric world? To me, the thing that I find most frustrating is parents don't feel heard. They don't feel like their concerns are being addressed through the medical model consistently. So there's certainly a lot of great pediatricians out there. I never right. talk poorly about any of my you know, friends, practitioners out there. They're all doing you know, what we have learned. And what we learned in medical school was here's your, here's your disease, here's your treatment. We learned pharmaceutical medicine. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's so many new problems that we're seeing or we're seeing the rates of chronic disease rise and the medical model just doesn't work that well for a lot of those problems. They don't think about the root cause right. of the disease. So you have, for example, a rash, right? And that rash keeps coming back and you keep using a cream, like a steroid cream. And that's great. It goes away and it's great to use that if you need it, but it doesn't think about why you have it. And that's where I think natural medicine, functional medicine has really come in to bridge those gaps because we need to think about why. We need to think about could there be something in your diet that's causing the rash? Could there be something in your environment that's causing the rash? Could you have been exposed to something, you know, when you were younger that caused it? Is there a stress issue? Mm-hmm. And and in the medical model, especially with insurance, it just seems like we're having to see more and more patients every hour. You have less and less time to yeah. deal with those issues. And so it's a lot easier to say, oh, you have a rash, here's a steroid cream, mm-hmm. than it is to get into your entire history and spend half an hour and discuss it. So there's just a logistics issue, I think, as well as a knowledge-based issue that come into effect. And it's not necessarily practical right now for the regular pediatricians to, to delve into this because you don't have an hour to go over this. It, it just it doesn't work in the insurance model that well. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so what is it, like 8 to 12 minutes that you have, really? Just come in, take it. And <laughs> not even. Not even. I, a lot of the, the stats are, you know, you have two or three minutes with a doctor. I, I had... Uh, you know, Kaiser for a little while, and I saw a doctor for five minutes. It's just, it just depends. Every doctor is a little bit different, right. but a lot of doctors are seeing six plus patients an hour. Wow. So that's, you know, you're, you're probably with a patient for two or three minutes, maybe five minutes, but that's not enough yeah. in general. And that's not everybody for sure, but that's that's what we're seeing. And that's scary. You can't, how much can you really do in you five, 10 minutes? No, you can't. You can't. So let me ask you a question. There's, there's a lot of kids out there who are suffering with a lot of pediatric issues. What are some of the top pediatric issues that you see coming through your door? Biggest issues right now that we're seeing are mental health issues, I would say. Overall, right? before you know, autism, rheumatologic issues, uh, ADHD, behavior concerns, and then just your regular old, the regular old stuff like coughs and colds and runny noses. I mean, we're not seeing as much of that right now because people aren't coming in as much with everything going on. Um, But that, you know, usually the most of your day is like the coughs, colds, runny nose, ear pain. Um, But we're seeing just a steady increase of chronic disease. The latest statistics are somewhere between 20 to 25 to 50% of kids have a chronic disease taking a medication, which is staggering and scary. Adults, it's over 50%. You just blew me away because I didn't know that stat for children on a medication so young. So young, yeah. And and was it mental or mental and physical, just physical, do you know, or is it just... The CDC status for chronic disease, so I don't know all of what they include in there, but I, right. well, yeah, they would include depression, anxiety, those kind of things in there, so yes. So you have all of these mental, emotional issues coming through your door. Um, what 
what are you attributing it to? What are you, what are you thinking? Is, do you have any theories out there? Because I, I know personally there's some, some people in my groups who they have kids and there's, there's, there's kids of friends of friends and or them, they have some behavioral issues, really active, super active, can't pay attention. I have my theories. I just want to know what, what, are you, what are you thinking? Right now, a big you know, part of it is just everything going on in life being so different during, during the pandemic, I, especially with the older kids. They're used to being around their friends. They want to be in school. They're not having the socialization that they crave. And so you're just seeing the rates of depression and anxiety skyrocket. Homeschooling is better than nothing, but it just doesn't work for a lot of people. And so it's really tough on, on a lot of kids. And, and pretty much every child over 10 that I've seen in the last six months is really expressing anxiety, depression, something like that. We're seeing the rates of suicide go up. We're seeing the rates wow. of mental health uh, hospitalizations go up. They're up by 30% in 2020 from the year before. And, and we just forget that a lot of, a lot of these uh, mental health issues are dealt with at school. Mm-hmm. They're dealt with by counselors. They're, they're picked up by teachers. And when you're not there... Um, the, the problems can, can really spiral. So I think that's a big issue. Another part of it just in general is just the overall, I would say, unhealthiness of society and the unhealthiness of children in terms of poor diets, not getting enough exercise, not getting outside and getting sunlight, um, not sleeping well and being stressed out in social media. So I think all of those things together have had started the fire and then it's you know we pour gasoline on it with the pandemic yeah and then and then it just exacerbates everything i and i love that you said a lot of things but in getting back to nature sleeping well being in the sun being outside socializing in, in their small communities that they have in school mm-hmm. so so important for the mental health you did mention the social media part i think that's a massive it plays a massive role on kids mental health and evolutionarily, like we're not used to that much stimulus. And all of a sudden they have this world of images, boom, 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 back and forth, validation coming from this, right? Judgment coming from this. We, when we were kids, we didn't have to deal with that, right? No, it's maybe so in new. a little different. A little bit different. Like maybe it's magazine covers or billboards. For but sure. we didn't have to see this constant stream. What is that doing to children's brains? It's, it's incredible to think about that, right? Yeah, I don't think we know yet, but I don't think it's doing anything good. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. All the research shows you we just have to get kids off you know, social media as much as we can. It's, it's like playing the, uh, you know, a slot machine where it's just this consistent dopamine hit looking through your you know, Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And it's tough on kids. They, they see fake images all the time and then you're comparing yourself to that and at the same time you have to deal with the um, social media bullying which is something new we didn't really have to ever deal with that you could do anything and it can be taken out of context one of other kids posts it and then you have to deal with everybody seeing it making fun of you and it's also there for life yeah you know (laughs) it's crazy you know you see some things where people go back in time years and and they get their college admissions taken away or they get, you know, for something you did 20 years ago or not 20 years, it'll be five, 10 years ago. And and that's just a whole new level of problems that we've just never had to deal with before. And and there's no way for for teens to deal with it. We, we, as adults, don't even know how to deal with it. So how would they know how to deal with it? Yeah, and they're on their phones so much. I like, I I don't remember when it just happened. I guess it was gradual. Because I ever, if I when I was really out in public and everyone was walking around the streets and in the mall and every, I would see kids like in their baby carriage with a phone to their face or an iPad to their face, either playing a game or watching a cartoon, and it's pretty incredible because 
we didn't have that amount of stimulus that close too, and that that amount of blue light. And it's it's something that I don't know why, especially with the phones that kids are so drawn. Even I have a 15 month old, and for whatever reason, like he loves the phone. He'll go yeah. grab it. He'll take it away. We don't let him on it, but he'll mm-hmm. like that's what he wants. Like yeah. he sees it. it. Not even the TV. Like he doesn't even watch anything on TV. He can't sit and watch it for even a minute or two. But the phone, he will go and grab it, and he loves it, and run away with it, and he'll try to, you know, put his hand on it and, and play with it. And there's just something about that stimulus that is affecting our brains, and and we we almost need it. And and I found even for myself that I was just getting to the point where. I was on it too much, and I, I wish I could just get rid of my phone totally and, and never have it with me other than maybe having a flip phone, but with the office, you know, I get texts from patients, so yeah. I need to be available for that. But I, I have made it even for myself that I, I try to be on social media for no more than 10 or 15 minutes a day just to post wow. stuff, but not to really read, because it, it's just so beyond, it's so frustrating being on there now. I remember even five years ago, you know, you go onto Facebook, and there's puppies, and there's, you know, the videos of people getting hit in the groin and like, you know, just funny stuff, right? <laughs> and like, that's what it was. And now it's like people getting angry and yeah. discussions about politics and just yeah. like, just anger. Like every single thing is anger. And I, and I do blame to some degree, a lot of our issues on the way that social media algorithms have made fighting become the most popular thing that you see that mm-hmm. it rewards more likes and more comments. And, and right. so things that are controversial, you see more than just random stuff. So you don't see the puppies anymore. I miss the puppies. I miss the puppies and the cats. <laughs> but I, I think to myself then, what does a child or I mean an adolescent do when their view of the world is based on that? They're able to, they're, they're seeing so much argument. They're seeing so much fear-based stuff. And then that's their view of the world. When, when like I said, when we were young, we were riding bikes. Our view of the world was like exploration. Where mm-hmm. What's the next woods we're going to ride our bikes through? I, there's a massive shifts. I guess what I always tell parents is like, like you said, getting back to nature. Like, can we, and, I, and I, I say maybe four hours, max, draw a hard line, no more, son or daughter, no more. <laughs> and then go, you know, going out in the sun, putting your feet in the ground, um, playing in the sun, just getting closer to nature. Um, it's so important. We, we were attached to nature. I know you were outside when you were a kid. You were in Canada yeah. playing hockey. We were outside, you know, playing shinny on the pond. Like that yeah. was normal. And it's just, it's not as normal anymore. And also there's just an added fear of, uh, you know, burglary and and people walking around with a knife and just yeah. kid you know kidnapping and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff i don't i don't feel like that was a i mean maybe we're just young and we don't <laughs> know about it as much but i just feel like it's such a more prevalent issue or if it, if, if it's not that much more prevalent it's just more we're more aware of it because of all these things we see you know the kidnapping in oklahoma mm-hmm. right and you just you never knew about that stuff before it doesn't mean it wasn't happening right. but you have this constant stream of fear and and we're learning how to deal with this fear but with a child their brain is being formed and and you know i don't think that we know how to handle it so there's no way that they know how to cope and handle with it no it's way even tougher for them no way for sure and, and i'm glad that we brought that the whole like phone social media part of it because i do think that it, it is a huge contributor i'm talking about like a top three contributor to kids mental health and even their physical issues it's all tied up, you know that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens? So then we, all, we we see a lot of babies come in, gut issues, crying, colic, eczema. Are you blaming the food? Are you blaming? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for for all those who are listening, that was a very it was a resounding nod. You were like, "Yep." Yeah, uh, it's the food. I, that's the number one contributor, I think, to health problems this day in general. I mean, certainly the stress is is a big issue, but our food is terrible. It's not the same that we ever had when we were growing up. Uh, Food is devoid of nutrients and it's 
full of chemicals. And it, yeah. that goes from, you know, baby food all the way up to, you know, the food that we're eating every day. We're not getting our food from gardens. We're getting it shipped in from across the country. You know, a lot of more children are eating prepackaged foods and mm-hmm. pouches and, and those kinds of things. You know, formula is, is fine if you need it, but again, it's a packaged thing that mm-hmm. has chemicals and, and toxins in it. And so all of that has some consequence. Our bodies are amazing and they can handle some level of a toxic load, but with everything that we're surrounded by, not just our food, but the water is filled full of chemicals and uh, we're breathing in chemicals yeah. and we're, you know, we need the the cleaners and the with our mm-hmm. 99% effective against all bacteria and viruses. We have you know, amazing you know, couches that are sprayed in fire retardants, right. clothes that are sprayed in right. fire retardants, and all these things are for safety to a degree, but when you add up all of these things, we're just getting to a level where more and more children are just not able to handle it, and then it expresses itself in all sorts of different ways. Rashes, gut issues, pooping, constipation, pain, bloating, all these things that we're seeing over and over again, and those are the the first signs usually. You start seeing the kid with eczema, you start seeing the kid with the rash, the constipation, and then it leads to uh, inflammatory bowel disease or some other thing down the road because it just doesn't get handled. And that's where as an integrative practitioner, you know, and hopefully as just regular practitioners in general, everyone will start to realize that these are signs of something extremely scary. And we have to notice this and make a change in everybody's health before it gets too late. Because what we're seeing, as we, you know, we talked about before, is adults, 50% or more have a chronic disease. Yeah. We have to stop that from going up. You know, the autism rates just keep going up and we don't know why. We have no idea why, and there's probably lots of reasons why, but I'm sure it's related to chemicals and toxins mm-hmm. to a significant degree. And it was, you know, one in 100 before, then it was one in 40, then one in 30, and the Stanford research that I, that, that we've seen last says it might be one in two or one in three in, in 10 years. It's insane. Like, uh, we're not talking about that. One in two or one in three, or what if it's one in five? You know, is that okay? That's yeah. crazy. You know, yeah. if you have two kids, one kid's going to have a chronic disease. That's not Okay. Mm, that's that's powerful stuff to think that I like I said before you just blew me away when I thought about how many kids are out there on a medication and to think that autism is that is that prevalent in 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 childhood groups it's do, just do you wild. remember autism when you were no, come do you remember peanut no, allergies bro, when, nothing I, I don't remember I'm sure it existed I'm yeah, sure there but were some I, kids but I don't remember it at all I don't remember one kid with autism in my school I don't ever. remember anybody with a peanut allergy ever and every other kid seems to have it now and I never met a kid in when I was a kid and heard the word, oh, he's autistic. Right. Ever. I saw some hyperactive kids mm-hmm. who were a little <laughs> bit crazy, but uh, but 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 that I've, I absolutely saw, and um, I didn't see. And it's pretty astounding to think that one in two, maybe one in five, but still that's way too much. It's way too much. And, you know, some of it might be that we're better at diagnosing it. We didn't really diagnose it back then, so I'm sure it did exist to some mm-hmm. degree, but th- that's not the story, right? That's not the story. That's not everything. Yeah. We It wasn't around then. It really wasn't. And just in our lifetimes, there's something that we're doing or probably many things that we're doing that are contributing to the downfall of our children's health. And our goal as, as parents is to give them a better world yeah. and keep them healthy. And you know, to me as a, as a dad, I'm, I'm terrified for my own child. I'm terrified for the patients because we're leaving them a world that's clearly worse than it was before. The, the, age that we're living is, is shortening. The, the yeah. Life expectancy is going down. That never happened before. Yeah. I, and I read that too. And I was like, wait, what? How? Uh, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the environmental toxin part. I've took so much interest into that when I got out of oncology in my residency and I really started practicing myself. And I was going, why didn't we talk about 
toxins in residency. And I started researching and seeing like, holy moly, like this is, this is a toxin that causes cancer. It's not even like maybe it causes, it causes cancer. Mm-hmm. And then you think about synergistically, how do they all work together? It's, right? it's mind blowing once you start to learn about some of this other stuff that we never learned about it because you're like, wait a minute, what? Why didn't we learn about root cause? Why weren't we thinking like this? It's so logical and obvious, but you just get into this you know, machine cog of, yeah. of here's how you do it. Everybody comes in, let's get them out, let's treat them. And there's nothing wrong with that. The medical training is fantastic. You learn a lot of amazing stuff and it really is amazing at teaching you about serious stuff. You get really, really good at identifying the markers for cancer. You get really good at identifying someone who's really, really sick, right. but it doesn't really teach you what to do when someone's just a little bit sick on a consistent basis. You don't talk about that. You don't think about it. You just learn about, here's the symptoms that you look for. Here's what you don't want to miss. Make sure you send them to the emergency department for this problem. That's what most of your training is, especially where I went to, which is a very, you know, really good program. It was a tertiary center where everybody was sent. We got really good at, you know, G-tubes and, and feeding schedules and the serious, serious stuff, but you barely ever see an ear infection. You barely ever talk about, you know, what do you do for, for gut health? It's not a, it's not a part of medical training, but it has to be. We have to move things in that direction because it's not one or the other. It's not, you know, medicine is good or integrated medicine is bad. We have to do the best for the patients. For sure. And both of them together are the best. And modern medicine is really alternative medicine. Alternative medicine has been around for thousands of years. Modern medicine for, you know, a few hundred years or whatever you want to call the beginning of modern medicine. So which one's really alternative? Mm-hmm. And we're... You know, pretending like these things that have been around for thousands of years or are used in China or other places in Asia are, are useless, but they obviously have some validity if they've done it for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, thousands of years. The longevity is there, and it helps people like TCM, Ayurveda. Um, but 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 to think like we need we we're not building that bridge. And I always tell people like, look, shoot, I, I walk out there, I, I go to get an acai bowl or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not with, with a little acai. After your booch. La, yeah, after the kombucha. This is so LA right now, right? <laughs> but I get hit by a car. You better get me to the emergency room, mm-hmm. and I want the best doctor right there, right? Yeah. Um, but but like you said, and, and and I love that you said that. We we don't we don't get trained on how to treat small things that happen over a long time, and they just don't go away. Or preventatively, you right. know? It's, it's, medicine used to be a lot more, well, doctor is teaching, don't say it, right? So it's, that's the term. Yeah. It used to be much more about teaching and prevention, uh, but now it's much more about treatment. And we've moved that way because of pharmaceuticals. So we have yeah. great treatments, which is good. These are good things, you know, things that would have killed you 10 years ago, we have a cure for now. So that yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. If you get hit by a car, you're really happy there's an MRI or an X-ray or CAT scan that can show if something's going on inside yeah. your body. There's nothing wrong with that, but you don't need that most of the time. And especially if you're a regular practitioner and like a family doctor or a pediatrician, the amount of times that you need a prescription is so minimal. I knew all the prescription antibiotics off by heart when I was in training. You know, we would give it out like candy during training because that's just what you know. I, I have to look up the dose every time I give a prescription now because I don't give it that often. I might do antibiotics like once a month now mm-hmm. versus like 10 times a day mm-hmm. before because once you have other options, you realize that for the most part, kids don't need an antibiotic. There are certain situations where they do. Mm-hmm. You might get a strep throat and have a positive test. Yes, you don't want the long-term complications of that. You might have a pneumonia, you need it. You might have an ear infection that's not getting better. But 9.9 out of 10 times, they get better on their own. If you give them you know, some elderberry syrup to try first or some honey or tea or whatever else, 
then you give their body a little bit more time to heal and they get better and they don't need any treatment. Their body gets them better on their own. But that comes with a knowledge of what's serious and good communication with the patients because they have to be able to communicate that they're getting worse because if you give them you know, uh, elderberry syrup and then it turns into pneumonia, they can't wait five days because it could get really serious. They do need the antibiotic, mm -hmm. but you have to be able to have that level of... Uh, trust and communication between you, but you can save them from antibiotics nine out of 10 times. And every time you take an antibiotic, there's some side effects from that. So it's good, but it also kills the good bacteria as well. So you have to use it when you need it. For sure. But we don't need it every other day. Yeah. Which is, and, and that's, that may be part of the precedent why some kids are getting sick because if they're having recurrent strep throat or recurrent ear infections and their doc is going here, antibiotics, up oh, three months later, antibiotics, antibiotics prolonged, what is that doing to the biome, right? Yeah, the average kid's a three to five times antibiotics a year in the first few years, which is wow. crazy, right? We don't, wow. we didn't have these things before, and there's good things too. We live longer, we save our, we mm -hmm. save lives because we have this stuff. But now, because we have it, it's easier to give a child an antibiotic than it is to explain why you don't need it. There are almost zero cases of kids that go to an urgent care and have ear pain or a throat, you know, cough something and don't come back with an antibiotic. Every single time when my patients go to urgent care, they'll call and be like, hey, we went to urgent care. Can we come check? They gave us antibiotics. I don't really think they need it, but you know, they gave it to us for the ear pain. And I'm like, okay, well, let's take a look. Leave it for a day or two, see if it gets better. You know, Once I've seen the ears don't look that bad. And they most of the time never need to use it. Mm -hmm. But we're just in this practice of, uh, almost the legal practice of trying to cover our butts. Yeah, right? and you go to there, and they're like, "Well, let's, it's better to just give it to you, so that way, you know, if something happens, at least I gave you the treatment and I covered my butt." Right. Versus what's actually right for the kid is see how it goes, check in in a day or two. If it gets worse, then you use it, but you don't need it today, mm -hmm. most of the time. And that's where you need to go to your practitioner to decide in each situation. But that's how we're treating. We're treating defensively because we don't want to get sued. That's not good for kids, right? You have to treat them on that day the best way that you can. And sometimes they need antibiotics, but most of the time they don't. I love that we had that conversation. And everyone listening or viewing, go get yourself a doctor who is just like you. Because, I mean, if I had a kid and I know, okay, look, this ear infection might get really bad, but let's do all of these things, right? And then let's wait. Let's just wait. Talk to my guy, Dr. Gator. Hey, doc, it's not getting better. All right, let's do the antibiotics. You know, like at least you have... Uh, a period where you're letting the body heal. And the most incredible thing, and I know you've seen it before, I've seen it when I was in the pediatric shift, kids' vitality, they heal so fast. Mm -hmm. They are so open, they're like open vessels, and they're like, give it to me, give, it, give me a little bit, two days of it, it's gone. Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. That's one of the things I love about kids is they're, they're so, uh, their bodies heal. That, that's what, I mean, everybody heals. We're supposed to help our bodies get back into balance, and that's, you know, our goal in medicine is to get them back in balance but they heal so quickly. And most of the time, you don't need anything. And especially most of the time, things are viruses, they're not bacterial. So you're giving an antibiotic for something that's doing nothing. They do the research on ear infections and the vast majority of ear infections are not covered by amoxicillin. Oh. So we're giving it for no reason. It's gonna get better either way. But you're, when parents go to a practitioner, they want to do something. Their kid's in pain. They don't want you to say, oh, well, your kid's ear is fine. You know, but they're not fine. So they want something to do. And a practitioner wants to do something. They're a good human being. A pediatrician mm -hmm. is a good human being and they see a kid in pain. And if they have only an antibiotic, that's what they're gonna give. If they only have a steroid, that's what they're gonna give. If we have five, 10 more options of natural things you could try first that have been researched that show they have some help, maybe they're not as good as an antibiotic for something serious, but they will work most of the time, then you can give 
the vitamin C. You can give the elderberry, you can give the honey. First, you've done something, the parent is happy because they have something to do, and you give them another day or two to heal, and most of the time they do. And yeah. if they don't, then you could do the antibiotic. As you said, 9.9 out of 10 times, man. And, and that's the part that I look at, I'm like, damn, like conventionally the tool belt is limited to, the, to these pharmaceuticals, which aren't necessary. It's like we're going to the last resort always. Correct. That's you know? exactly right. You're going to the last resort always. And that's your job as a doctor to realize when you need that last resort. And it's not like in my practice we're seeing hundreds of kids going to the hospital all the time because we're missing out on things where they get really sick and they shouldn't. You know, every once in a while somebody gets sick, but that's so rare. It's so much rare at my practice for a kid to need to go to the hospital than it was when I practiced the old way. It's just you see that when you give these things that can exacerbate the problem too. So yeah. it's, it's a balance and yeah. it's not a knock on medicine. It's just, it's not the only way. It's For not sure. the only way. Both things are good For when sure. you use it right. That's the way, that's the way that I look at it too, always. Um, how, how prevalent are these kids with gut issues? Because we, we talked about the antibiotics, but I have a friend who has a, a daughter, a toddler. She's already got gut issues. She's already like st stomach pains. She's bloated. She can't go to the bathroom. Then she can. What's going on? I think probably all kids have gut issues, or at least the vast majority of them do. We don't eat food that's that good. We eat a lot of wheat and dairy and chemicals and preservatives. And it's pretty rare for families to come in, at least at the old practice, and, and say, you know, my kid goes to the bathroom a couple times a day. They never have any gut issues. They don't have constipation. It's it's much more common, oh, my kid poops every three or five days. It's hard. They have stomach aches every now and again. So I don't know what the prevalence is because a lot of it is, you know, kind of minor things. I don't think there's a statistic on it. But I would guess it's more than half for mm -hmm. sure and probably higher than that. I think my office is a little bit self-selected in terms of people that are a little bit more health conscious so they maybe don't eat as much of the, the crappy foods so they're not as many gut issues but it's still pretty high and over if you're talking over five ten years every kid's gonna have gut issues i don't yeah. know any kid that has had zero visits in my office that have been there for a while that haven't come in for some sort of gut issues wow to think about that i mean like i didn't have gut issues as a kid i didn't know people with gut issues really like it, it's just i remember when i was 20 Two, all of a sudden I was like, oh, fuck, I feel bloated. I don't feel, I don't feel great. Man, I got a colonoscopy. I got an endoscopy. I did, I did a barium swallow. I, like they were just checking everything. And then they're like, oh, you have IBS. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? What, what do I have? I, what does that mean? And they're like, oh no, you, you're like, you're stressed. I was like, well, you have like medication for me that I could take or something. It was nothing. No, eat, I, eat good food. Eat good food. <laughs> but I can't imagine how many kids now, I mean, I got it when I was 22. But I can't imagine how many kids are suffering with it. Who knows? I mean, it's so many. The number one tool that I have as an integrative doctor, and if you look at any study in integrative medicine, the number one thing that makes the biggest difference is diet changes. Everybody says that. It, you know, we look at functional medicine, look everywhere. If you make a diet changes and you can figure out what's inflaming in the gut, you see things improve. And it's the one thing where somebody could be having a problem for so many years. It could be anything. It could be rashes. It could be body aches and you make a diet change, it almost always improves things. It doesn't always make it go away. But we, if you think about it, then you can identify certain things and you can see a gradual improvement in kids, adults, yourself, whoever's listening. You know, that's really what you have to think about. And even myself, when I was growing up, I played a lot of sports. I coached a lot of sports. I was on the road a lot. I ate fast food. I didn't really think about it. Right. I used to have you know, stomach aches and bloating and 
uh, constipation, all sorts of things. And I didn't think about any of that stuff till I got older, till I went through school, till I met my wife who was very holistic minded and I started changing my diet and I felt so much better. And the body is amazing. And a lot of times we don't realize what's going on in our body until we improve things, until you stop something. You, your body gets really good at handling it. So you like have this underlying kind of bloating and stomach ache, but you don't really feel anything. And then you stop eating, let's say the wheat, and then you feel way better, and then you eat it again, you're like, whoa. Right, <laughs> right, right. Which is a good marker for people. Barometer, we follow, let's follow that. Like, take it out and see how you mm -hmm. react. You, you mentioned uh, dairy. How, is that, a, is that a, do you think most kids can handle dairy, or do you think that um, it's, it's problematic at some point? I think it's problematic with the dairy that we have in America. I know a lot right. of people, dairy and wheat, both of those things, I think the what, we call dairy and wheat now so different than when we grew up. And it's in a lot of cases so different than Europe where you see people go over to another country and they're fine with it, but here they're not. And I'm not sure that it's the dairy per se that's the issue from It's the chemicals in there or the way that the cows are treated or the way that the milk is produced that creates a version of you know what we call milk now, but it's been processed, it's been sitting, it's been in store, whatever. There's so many things that go into the milk that we have now. It's not the same thing anymore. So. It's definitely a big issue. I don't know that every kid has a major issue with, with dairy. A lot of people can tolerate it just fine. But you have to see for yourself with your own kid. A lot of times, you know, parents will ask me when their kid turns one, you know, when we start switching over to, to milk, what do you suggest? And I'm fine if people want to try it because I think it's fine to do it if it, your kid tolerates it. But there's so many other uh, options at this point that mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to do cow's milk dairy anymore you know we grew up when it was like oh you need milk it's good for your bones you know we see all the commercials with the milk yeah. mustaches but <laughs> yeah. we have like the, some of the worst rates of osteoporosis in the world and you know we realize that it's just not that well absorbed from cow's dairy so you don't need it if you eat healthy for sure and i did a whole show talking <laughs> just about what you said and it's pretty incredible that still so many pediatricians are like drink three four glasses of milk your kid needs three four glasses of milk this is antiquated science like you're, you know, you know what helps kids' bones. I know you know exercise, movement, <laughs> like running around. You know, like this is this is what activates it. Good sun, vitamin D. Like these are all things that yeah. kids need more of. I agree. I, I don't. I think it's fine if you want to give your kids some milk. There's some calories in there, and there's there's some yeah. good things, especially if you get a good quality milk. But it's just something to think about. I don't think it's the necessary factor in a healthy child. It's it's so down on my list of important things awesome, for yeah. a healthy child. It's fine if you want to do it. It's fine if you want to do almond milk or pea milk or goat milk or, you know, there's a million milks now, right? right? So get whatever milk you want, but that's not what's going to make your kid healthy. It's not what's going to make your kid grow. It's one tool, but it's eating healthy. It's getting, I call it the seeds of health or the foundation. So stress, environment and toxins, uh, exercise, diet, and sleep. Those are the foundations, right? That's what we seeds. know from generations of research and generations of research this isn't new stuff, but we just forgot about it. I love that. The seeds of research. Um, so top three things, let's, let's, let, let's end it this way. If I, if there's someone listening or watching the show and they go, well, you know, like I can't get out to an integrative physician, you know, like it's not in my budget. We'll say, what can they start doing right now with their kids to get them in a place to be really healthy? So when they do, if, and when they do, the kid will just be in good shape. What are the top three interventions you say right now? Let's do it for all our kids, everyone out there. So number one is to think about the seeds. So think about the things that you can modify at home 
uh, that you can make a change in your kids today. So if it's you know stress, if you have your kids on their phone all the time, then just do some uh, holidays from the from the phones. So you say, okay, at dinner for one hour, we're not going to do phones. You can do phones the rest of the day. It doesn't have to be the whole day, but just pick some time so that we decrease that stress. Number two, I would say, is diet. So really think about the diet. Think about a few small things that you can make a change by organic, by um, not genetically modified foods, by real foods. Look at the labels. That's yeah. always my number one tip for parents in my office is read the labels. If you look at the back of the label and it's some long chemical term you never heard of, tetramethyl, whatever, it's probably not good for you. If it says almonds and pecans and cranberries, it's probably okay. So make some changes like that. Make the food for your kids. And then the final one would be toxins. Think about everything that you bring into your home, especially now at the pandemic, we're at home more. Uh, So you're surrounded by the things in your home and there are better options that you can have that are, um, they don't necessarily have to be more expensive. You can use vinegar and water and, and baking soda and whatever for cleaning and that should be fine in certain situations. So switch out your chemical, you know, long list chemical cleaners and do some things that you just create yourself uh, and think about the clothes that you buy. Think about the couch that you buy, the comforter, all those things that are around you, the makeup that you're putting on, the, the creams you're using for your kids. Yeah. They're so, they're, a lot of them are filled with toxins, and a lot of them aren't. You could just get a calendula cream or a shea butter. So just think about those things. And then I would say, finally, uh, in terms of your, your question of getting an integrated practitioner, so they, they go to an integrative doctor, an integrative practitioner, and then after they get better, they go back a month or two or three months later to their regular practitioner. And the regular practitioner's like, what did you do? What did yeah. you take? How did you get better? And then they start to learn about it yeah. and they get open to it. So people are moving in that direction, I think, a little bit. But don't be shy to talk to your doctor. We love to learn about stuff. So bring things. But, awesome. but don't bring up a Facebook group. <laughs> don't bring, don't, not the Facebook group. <laughs> that is off limits. All right. Uh, how do we find you, though? You can find me at uh, integrativepediatrics.com or on Instagram at Dr. Joel Gator. All right. And you practice here in L.A., right? I'm in L.A. I'm in Studio City at Integrated Pediatrics and Medicine. All right. Everyone, if you're looking for a doc and you're in L.A., this guy's Dr. G approved. He's awesome. <laughs> and he's doing it right. Thank you, doc, for coming. I Thanks appreciate for it. Me. All right, there you go. Dr. Joel Gator dropping some pediatric bombs. I'm so happy that we went over that conversation. So many of you who are listeners are young parents, uh, older parents, want to have kids. And it's always important to understand the role of food, the role of medicines, the role of, of, of all the food chemicals when it comes to our child's health. So I really hope that helped. And I'm really excited to see you all next week. Really good show. I already, I already have it planned out in my head. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing. And if you haven't, please do so. And if you have your auntie or your grandma or your sister or your brother, then have them do it too. Let's support the show. We want to hit 20 million. Why not? We can. Much love for you. Have a great week.